Hey friends, welcome back to Eugene Apologetics. Super pumped to join us today to have Nathan Digital Gnosis. Uh, what's up, Nathan? How you doing? Yeah, I'm all right. Obviously, because there isn't a live audience because we're recording now, it's a bit sort of strange to be talking to, you know, like an audience without seeing chats. And, uh, you know, like I think I personify <laughs> the chats on the side where I'm kind of like, oh, hi guys or whatever, when, you know, really it's just little blocks of text or whatever. But, um, <laughs> yeah, hello, future audience. <laughs> hello, people from the future that will be watching this on monday april 18th or tuesday april 19th yeah. or whenever i upload this video um right now it's saturday but uh today we're just going to be talking with nathan about like christianity and apologetics and just kind of like his views and things um so nathan do you want to talk a little bit about like who you are and like what you do to get things started yeah i, I mean i can talk a bit about my background as well because i think that could mm -hmm. be relevant perhaps to um sure. your audience being an apologetics channel so um i'm not someone who was raised in christianity um and i'm not yeah, yeah, I wasn't really exposed to it at all, except through the kind of cultural Christianity that there is in UK schools. And you could argue that that still is pretty influential because, you know, like singing hymns uh, uh, about which contain theology in the hymns, you know, in primary school um, or learning like about the parables of Jesus in morning assemblies. I mean, that's potentially a significant amount of information at a, at a relatively impressionable stage in your life. But I became a Christian when I was about 19, um, 19 to 20. And that was kind of the result of the jo the Jordan Peterson phenomena, you know, his kind of rise to fame and popularity, which brought to my attention a bunch of issues that I hadn't really thought about before. I think the first time, I mean, Christianity became a kind of live option for me through some of the, well, I think probably through Peterson's, um, his psychological um, explanation or understanding of the biblical series of lectures that he mm -hmm. gave. And then I think the first exposure that I had to Christian philosophy was actually probably the debate he did with William Lane Craig and uh, Rebecca Goldfarb, I think her, her name is. Yeah, sounds uh, right. Stephen Pinker's wife, I think I, I think she is. But um, yeah, that was the first time I really listened to anyone like Craig or a Christian philosopher, you know, really make the case for a kind of a, a certain version of Christianity as opposed to Peterson's kind of tentative, you know, I kind of like the myths and the stories and there's meaning in them and so forth. Um, yeah, so, and the, fir the first real Christian book I read then was actually Augustine's Confessions as well. Um, that had quite a profound impact on me, particularly the kind of bi biographical account and some of the things that I was I was experiencing and struggling with in life at the time. I joined a Christian community in a Bible study. I, uh, you know, adopted the kind of beliefs that they had over time, became a full-blown Christian. I was a Christian for about three or so years. Um, and in that time, you know, I'd be attending church regularly, going to Bible studies as frequently as I could. I even um, did evangelism during like my holiday from work, for example, you know, I took a week off and went to a different town and we spent every day like on the street um, talking to people about Christianity and so forth. And then I ended up um, deconverting from Christianity. Probably That's probably about um, two and a half to three years ago now. I might not be 100% accurate in that timeline, but, and, and throughout, the time since I've kind of deconverted, I've, well, it, it's not like a, a switch just changed to something. I didn't believe in Christianity, but my my kind of beliefs have just kind of modified and, um, th you know, things have come in, things have dropped out. Like I, it seemed more like a kind of atheism at certain points. It seemed more like an agnosticism at certain points, but whatever it's been, it hasn't really been the same sort of Christianity. I mean, I've, when I felt most sympathy towards Christianity, it's been in a very anti-realist, um, 
sends, you know, but potentially closer to what someone like Jordan Peterson kind of talks about. But um, so that that's a bit of background about me. And then I've got a YouTube channel where, I mean, I just kind of do things for fun, but I also occasionally interview scholars and um, philosophers on there about various topics where I have more serious interviews. And um, sometimes I'll make videos which are just kind of critiques of things that I see going wrong in apologetics. I've got like the Bad Apologetics series where James Fodor and I um, go quite in depth on uh, talking about issues with arguments, but also issues with the kind of context that the arguments are being presented in, um, issues with the sort of power structures and things uh, and society, um, so sociological phenomena that kind of underlie certain certain um, things in apologetics. And so that that's quite, um, that's probably the most explicitly like anti-apologetics thing that I do. And other than that, I have like a lot of open conversations and hangouts with people and things on my YouTube channel. Mm, that's good stuff. And one of the things I really appreciate about, about you, Nathan, and one of the reasons that I have you on is it seems like through your journey, you've always been like very open. I remember thinking, I think it was over the summer or sometime in the fall, I, someone shared with me this blog post that you wrote, just kind of showing you like when you seemed like you're maybe like one of your points where you're more sympathetic towards Christianity, you're like, hey, it's apologetic stuff, you know, kind of garbage still. A lot of these people that, you know, are um, making these arguments, still not convinced, but like the, the moral appeal of Christianity um, in the sense of like purpose or something like that. And I'm just like spitballing, trying to remember this post. Like there's something there for you and you're like agnostic Christian, something like that. And that's one of the things I really appreciate about you is your openness. Because I think sometimes on like the YouTube realm of things, we'd like to be like the super confident people. Like, hey, I got this figured out. I got all my answers. I got my whole like philosophy figured out and everyone disagrees with me, like they're just wrong, bro. They don't know my arguments. So one thing I just really appreciate about you and I think can be translated to like my audience, maybe people from your side that might listen to this is that there's just beauty in realizing like that we don't have all the answers. Um, and I feel the same way. Like there's a lot of things I'm still trying to figure out. And I just wanted to say that I really appreciate that about you. So, yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now um, let's, I have to find something really mean to say. I just don't have anything. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, can't be so nice um maybe it'd be helpful that nathan at this point talk about like what are your current views towards christianity like where are you sure. maybe like epistemically on like things like god's existence and like the resurrection and where do you feel like maybe like the like you talked about like the peterson um kind of view towards it like where are you right now with regards to christianity um i mean i, I certainly I, you know i just use the word certainly so i don't know what you know catch that out however you want but i i certainly don't think christianity is true in this kind of realist sense that someone like um an evangelical like what you know william lane craig or a, a catholic like uh trent horn or someone would um sort of claim to know that god exists perhaps or believe that god exists with this super high degree of confidence um for me it's the the realist sense i i just kind of can't get that to work like it just it th there's either too many problems or it, it doesn't do anything so i don't really understand why i would think it was true I still, though, I, I immensely kind of value religion and its place in people's lives and what it does. Um, live options for me in terms of Christianity would be more in the kind of Christian mysticism tradition, <clears throat> which doesn't try so much to um, flesh out its theology in terms of you know cognitive content of doctrines that makes a ton of sense but it's kind of like well you know a lot of this is is just a mystery and it's more about the the role that christian christianity can play in your life it's more about um the kind of character reform perhaps that you go through and and 
relating to God in that way. And that that remains a sort of live option for me. But um, I do certain, I, I mean, I still view religion through a kind of naturalist lens, right? Which for me doesn't, it doesn't delegitimize um, either Christianity or Islam or anything else. I mean, I'm going to disagree when Christians and Muslims try to kind of attach metaphysical theories to the kind of things that we see taking place. But I think like the kind of activities that Christians engage in, whether it's the the rituals that are involved, whether it's kind of like the community or finding um, meaning in religious texts and trying to read that into your life to make sense of things or um, figure out, you know, correct conduct for your life or to get support to, to try and be a better person. Like th those things I think are, are very important. And um, so I would say someone kind of like praying through a difficult time or whatever, even though I wouldn't say there's anything like metaphysically occult or spooky going on from my point of view is, is still almost just as important as it could be on a, on a, from a Christian's perspective. Um, so, so that maybe that fleshes out my position a little bit, but yeah, the, a, a lot of the, the metaphysics of, you know, so, like some of the, the people you'll interview, I guess on here, it just doesn't really get off the ground for me. I just don't see it as, um, uh, well, live option is a, a word that I've kind of used, or I, ju I just don't see it as as well motivated for the kind of structure of beliefs that I currently have. Mm -hmm. So would you say, like, if I asked you anything, would you say that maybe you, like, epistemically are, like, atheistic, agnostic? Like, do you have, like, a label that you kind of, like, put on yourself? I tend to say agnostic, but I don't, I don't say that, I don't think that these words um, fall under sort of strict and precisely defined um kind of categories so i think mm -hmm. i tend to say agnostic to do a few things like i want i want it to show firstly that i'm not good i'm not being like completely dogmatic for example in my unbelief or that i can be like more friendly towards what the the theist or the religious person is kind of going to put forward and, and explore those ideas i think those are two things that i want to say by agnostic and i also don't want to make the claim that um it you know it couldn't be the case that god exists or anything like that i want to i want to make it clear that a lot most of my pronouncements really just are about my own belief structure <laughs> um mm -hmm. and, and not that much more you know I, I i'm relatively um i have a relatively low confidence in my capacity to pronounce like grand statements about the the structure of all of reality or something like that mm -hmm. um and so you know like i i quite like um, Paul Draper's distinction between kind of like local positions and global positions when he talks about like local atheism or local agnosticism. And I think, you know, I could I could fall in those camps, but um, I might say I'm an atheist sometimes to some people, though, if I if I get the sense that they're particularly um, dogmatic or it's going to be almost like a trigger word to, you know, people who talk about new atheists, for example, uh, um, in a pejorative manner, I might kind of say, well, I'm, a, I'm an atheist or something just in order to kind of mess with them a bit which doesn't sound but it's to kind of draw out you know the that i think that perhaps the way that they're conducting they're stereotyping you know people by using this label mm -hmm. of new atheist that i think if i can have like a pleasant conversation with someone and go yeah i'm a new atheist then it can kind of put them on the back foot a bit and make them reevaluate some of those stereotypes which can sometimes be useful for having a productive conversation so mm -hmm. I, I mean i use different labels in different contexts but yeah i'm broadly going to fall within like agnosticism um, and atheism, or I might even fall within like anti-realist um, theology of some kind, because like I said, I still, f I still find um, value in the kind of rituals and ceremonies and so forth.
So I'd be curious to Nathan thinking about a statement. Like, for example, if I like, like I'm like, I'm a Christian, a Christian, a Christian is British people say I'm a Christian. Um, so like, I would say like, I believe that God exists. So would you say then Nathan, like you don't believe God exists? Or you're just kind of like, not sure. Do you think it's just like, maybe, maybe not, but all the apologetics kind of stuff trying to argue for God isn't really very good. So like, we're, we're kind of, you like looking at it from maybe like a more like, um, apologetic, or like philosophical lens on like looking at like the question of the existence of God. Yeah. At, at the moment I would, um, answer that, that I don't think that's the case. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's heavily dependent on the mood that I'm in. Um, yeah. You know, so, sometimes when I'm feeling more sentimental or maybe even more more upset, right, I might find value in going to a church service. And part of participating in the church service might mean like reading the creed or something. I say like, I believe in God, but I view what's going on there as kind of in a, in a non-cognitivist sense. It's more about participating in the ritual. Um mm -hmm. And it's kind of like enjoying a good poem or something, right? Rather than about expressing the content. And I, and this is where I, th I think there's kind of like, at, at least for me, when it, when I say like the anti-realist version of Christianity that you could sometimes be labeled under, there's a kind of distinction between you know what actually takes place that we're trying to describe and the kind of metaphysical theories that people want to attach to you know what's going on behind behind the scenes there, and. Um, so yeah, when it comes to like pl doing the metaphysics game and talking about theories, right? I'm pretty much, cons I, I think I'm pretty consistently going to disagree with um, like realist theories of Christianity that try to attach, um, you know, like the content of God existing to me taking that action or whatever. But so you know, someone mm -hmm. who takes like a a non-cognitivist view of religious language or or something else, I mean, they could be on board with plausibly even calling me a Christian when I when I'm in those moods, right? But like I say, the, the you know the past few months, I I'm sort of not of that persuasion currently. So it, mm -hmm. you know, it's it, it's not like one. Um, it's not just this binary switch in my view. There's kind of a lot of weird things that go on around religious belief and conversion and deconversion. Well, it's definitely tricky. Like thinking, especially for you, Nathan, having a a non-Christian background, but then like becoming a Christian um, and then deconverting. So like you've definitely had a lot of like experiences that have shaped you. Um, so when you're interacting with the realm of like apologetics and philosophy and things like this, there's a lot of factors at play. Um, and obviously our emotional state is super vital. Like there's some days where I'm like super confident that God exists and other days where I'm like, man, I don't know, this is tough. Um, so like, I, I totally understand that, uh, wh where you're at. So maybe be helpful then you spend a lot of time, um, James Fodor, Fetter, um, you have your bad apologetics series, which is a lot of fun to listen to. I've listened to, um, there'd be a few of those, like I'd work like over the summers when I'm not in university and I'm just like, have like an eight hour work day. I'm like, well, put it on one and a half speed and get a whole episode right. done <laughs> in a whole day. Um, so you spent a lot of time critiquing apologetics. So what is your current view, Nathan, with regards to like the nature of like apologetics? Yeah, I really, I, I quite dislike apologetics. Um, and I actually, I think it undermines true religion in, in my opinion. Um, my view is that a lot of apologetics arises. I mean, and <laughs> this is actually something that um, Cameron Bertuzzi himself has recently come to the realization of, I think, when, you know, when he made the video, like the biggest mistakes that apologists make, he he made some of the same points that um, I would make in criticizing apologists. I just, I don't think he kind of brings it all together in the same way that kind of I would. But um, the, the criticism would be that a lot of the, a lot of apologetics is basically performative. It's kind of like, um, it's kind of like a kind of philosophical or intellectual drag that someone dresses up in 
to kind of make their religion appear um, rational in a particular kind of way. So I, I think mm -hmm. that true religion is something that kind of, it's really kind of sincere and heartfelt. When, when people, if you listen to people's um, conversion testimonies, for example, the kind of stories that they'll tell about the reasons that they convert for, uh, in general, I mean, not everyone, there's obviously going to be some outliers, you know, who will who, who will have converted for purely intellectual reasons. But in general, it's going to be things like, you know, going through a really tough period in their life. And God was the thing that kind of pulled them through that in some sense. Or a Christian community came into their life and they started, real, you know, they, they started realizing um, the message of, of Christ and how that could do work for them. And, and I think that kind of what happens to some people, at least, is they either experience a certain degree of cognitive dissonance or they feel like they believe something that's that's slightly silly or something like that. So then they have to kind of find arguments which entail the conclusion that God exists, which they hold on completely different grounds, and then provide those as if the reason that they um, are a Christian and believe those things is the upshot of like this series of derivations, right? Like just one day they were kind of sitting around in their lounge and they were reflecting on things. They thought, huh, everything that begins to exist seems to have a cause of its existence. And, you know, they could the, the universe probably began to exist. They just, they just woke up contemplating the ontological argument. And they're like, oh, shoot, exactly. God exists, my bad. Yeah, and that, and that just commits me to the conclusion that God exists. You know, I, I sort of think mm -hmm. that the, the arguments kind of come later to a whole bunch of other things that are going on. And then, so then within Christian, within... um online spaces and offline spaces there's this whole kind of discourse i suppose between people who are apologists and people uh, and people who you know represent other um sort of kingdoms i guess i'm going to call them of like a certain atheist communities or perhaps like philosophy of religion communities whatever and the people who are in these different communities are kind of engaging in the discourse in different ways and the ostensibly christian communities the way that they're engaging in in the discourse is you know through this paradigm of presenting like a, a series of arguments which from which it follows that god exists that doesn't um and yeah i i guess I, there's a, a lot of things that i see i i guess it can make sense for certain forms of christianity why you do that right if you think that that's going to convince people i suspect that what it mostly does is for people who are in people who perhaps are kind of new to Christianity, or maybe they're not new, but they're thinking about um, the kind of content of their theology for the first time, and, and they might be experiencing doubts. I suspect that these kind of engagements serve to do away with some of the cognitive dissonance, perhaps. They kind of re either reduce people's doubts, or they add some flesh on the bones of pro you know propositions that they just hadn't thought about before. And so they can watch someone like William Lane Craig, you know, de debate um, someone who's supposed to be like a leading authority of the atheist community. Um, and William Lane Craig might provide them with ideas they they can now kind of assent to and agree to that are going to be like, yeah, these are good reasons to believe. And they can also be like, and I'm really confident that those reasons also rebut the best atheist positions because I've seen a debate where that happened. And I think that that's the work that apologetics is, is potentially um, doing. Of course, occasionally it, it converts someone. And then I think there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of kind of like marketing. There's a lot of like public um, profilicity, which is something that Hans Georg uh, more talks about quite a lot. So it's sort of the, you know, the idea of like 
being an influencer and appealing to the general peer or marketing, you know, your kind of brand in a certain way. And that takes place in the apologetic spaces as well. It's kind of inevitable for everyone online that they're going to do this to some degree. Um, But I think there's something about the apologetic space that I dislike about that, which is the kind of profiles that people have, that people build to appeal to the kind of general Christian peer seem kind of disingenuous in some way. Um, And that kind of rubs me up the right because I enjoy, well, one thing is because it seems like people are talking about doing one thing, which is sincerely seeking the truth. while doing something that's completely different, such as, you know, marketing um, slogans and stereotyping people who disagree with them and so forth. Um, and also avoiding sincere conversations about the the issues at hand. And that, th- those sorts of things kind of re- really frustrate me about apologetics in general. Um, so, yeah, I've, I mean, I've said a lot there. I don't know if there's mm-hmm. anything, you know, it might be like trying to hammer jello to a wall or whatever, because I've said so much. Mm-hmm. But if there's one thing that stuck out that you wanted to pick me up on or... Yeah, there's a couple of things. So I wrote down two things as you were talking, Nathan. One was one thing I totally agreed with you with, um, and one is maybe I'm disagree with. So to start with, like the agreement, I think you're totally right. In the beginning, you talked about like the religious nature of like often with conversion, it's not usually just a lot of times apologetics or things like that isn't involved in conversion. And I think you're most generally right um, because I think about a lot of people that I know that are Christians. For a lot of them, their conversion isn't the result of like studying like the Kalam cosmological argument or like the case of the resurrection. It's something more um, experiential um, or emotional or things like this, which in my mind, isn't a bad thing. And I don't think you would say that either. It's just sometimes you're right. I think you're right about this idea that um, oftentimes a religious conversion is not with regards to just like studying arguments. And like, I think that's the way it probably should be. Like I think about in the book of James um, where it talks about like pure religion in verse 127 is like, um, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. It's not pure religion is studying the works of Thomas Aquinas. I guess he didn't exist when the book of James was written. Um, but like, I think that like, there's something to this where if we're just doing like apologetics the whole time and missing like this experiential um, carrying out your faith, like actually like loving on people in your, your community or the people around you, you're really missing out on something. Um, if you're Christians, so I'm speaking to Christians there so something i really agree with you with is that religion shouldn't just be um especially as christian just about like apologetics and like trying to like make these arguments as good as possible and like i think there are good arguments so i disagree with you there um the other the thing i would disagree with you on and after this feel free to comment wherever you see fit is i think that there's a little bit more meat to apologetics than just trying to like uh, maybe like reinforce faith so like for example i'm very convinced that like the worldview of christianity is true and to me, I think about, well, if Christianity is true, then you'd probably be able to find some sort of like epistemic support for it through maybe like arguments or things like that. And then I look around the world and I think about like natural theology and things. And I think there are like good arguments for God. And these can be things that kind of like um, strengthen your faith almost. Like you'd say like, hey, I have this like experiential, like religious side um, where there's something really real to this. But you could also look and say, hey, in this other field of maybe like the sciences or um, philosophy or whatnot there is this like thing that seems to support um my belief and i think that's a good thing i don't really see that as a bad thing because i see it as like um different like realms of evidence from different kind of spheres supporting like the same like structure it's kind of how i see it so i don't know if you have any thoughts on anything i just said yeah i I do think it's an interesting uh discourse i mean a lot a lot of what i do is i occasionally kind of comment on the the kind of content of the arguments and stuff but I, I think what the reason why a lot of what i do um 
appeals to to people on but on both sides is because I kind of I like to step out of that and talk about the matter of the discussion and mm-hmm. um and talk about the discourse as a whole and I think that that kind of points out some some kind of like ironies and things that are taking place there mm-hmm. um so I like I agree there's there's probably I I can name I think a few people who are Christians for whom you know this genuinely is just them kind of exploring something that's intellectually interesting for, from their point of view mm-hmm. and yeah. it's almost it's almost like i don't want to say detached from their faith because obviously the kind of beliefs that they form influence the kind of theology that they have or how they might conduct themselves in in church or whatever because that that's going to modify their belief structure but um in an in another sense it is just you know this kind of intellectual activity on one side and then and their faith and religion and stuff is kind of a bit removed from it but i think for a lot of the people who are apologists in the online spaces, it really is connected to um, either resolving um, cognitive dissonance that they themselves experience or kind of pandering to an audience that is experiencing that and kind of trying to um, trying to market Christianity, essentially, like kind of being Christianity's PR team and um trying to present a narrative about the the state of the discourse and what Christianity is and so forth in order to resolve those doubts for people. And I I think that that's a a, a big swathe of what Christians do. I mean, to to think of a a specific example, um, one would be like Cameron's reasons for getting into apologetics were because his brother was doubting. um, And then he wanted to then find, you know, good reasons to be a Christian to persuade his brother. And then I think he got into, you know, having some of these online conversations and things. Then he got into kind of inviting people on and, uh, you know, like philosophers to to discuss their arguments or to, to host little debates either between YouTubers or philosophers. And I think that while now he's moving more in a direction of interviewing more scholars, I think for a long time, a lot of what his channel has been about has been kind of like marketing sort of memes and uh, and creating these um, kind of system one stereotypes almost for pe- cr- people who are Christians who are struggling with um, doubts or struggling to kind of view Christianity as an intellectually viable option. And, you know, in a culture where a lot of people or an increasing number of people, it's slightly different in the US, I suppose, to over here, because the vast majority of people are still Christians, but where an increasing number of people um, kind of don't, believe in Christi- in the kind of core propositions of Christianity or where the kind of entities that make up Christian theology don't do a lot of work in people's everyday lives and so on. So a, ho- a hostile environment. And I think that a lot of the, uh, a lot of kind of Cameron's efforts have gone into um, pro- producing these kind of like s- stereotype type memes that people almost ha- have in their mind. And you'll see them come up um, in comment sections or, you know, in live chats while people rather than people being able to like genuinely talk to each other, you just see these kind of like mimetic talking points come up and, uh, and uh, people struggling to really engage with each other because the, the discourse has been presented as this thing right to one side. And I'd accuse atheists of the same thing. I mean, I see a lot of terrible points from people um, who are atheists and I can clearly tell that they're part of a particular atheist community, right? Where the discourse is presented as a certain thing. So people who mm-hmm. subscribe to that discourse, um, have like 
you, you know, like a, a set kind of belief structure that they're going to present to people that involves like a, a bunch of claims that might not actually be good, you know, good reasons to to be an atheist that, you know, and I, maybe I'll, I'll say like a, a lot of those people perhaps watch like the atheist experience and so on. Right. Um, and I, I just kind of dislike that. I, th I think I think there are more productive conversations to be had around religion but the problem is that you you kind of can't have i don't think that you can actually have the authentic conversations across boundaries um and maintain maintain some of the um some of the kind of effects that um certain kind of apologetics youtube channels want to have you know like it for example if frank chorek began to humanize um the people that he talked to right rather than have them as like dumb college kids who are influenced by liberalism and don't believe in truth or something um then all of a sudden it would be more difficult for him to create 10 second sound bites of him doing like gotchas on them to show how dumb like the what the world believes is because that's, that's kind of the discourse he's presenting to his audience is like look how dumb the world is without the christian worldview um and if he if he instead like sat down and approached people, you know, the students that he's talking to as humans, explored their belief structure, it's just more difficult to kind of have them as like, you know, these blue haired weirdos who like say something dumb. And then he just goes, is that true? And everyone goes like, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a couple of things that are um, valuable in what you said, Nathan. What is I think that um, going back to what you said, like we have like the idea of like the like apologetic, like intellectual sphere and then like the religious sphere. Um, and how they don't oftentimes like intermix. I think they can sometimes, and I'm sure you, you would agree. Like, I'm not saying anything you disagree with. I was just thinking about like in my own experience, I was reading this book. Um, it's a recent book that just came out called like Religious Experience and the Knowledge of God, something like that by Harold Netland. And he talked about how something along the lines of like, um, he's not full on Plantigan with regards to like epistemology, but like how you can have like Christianity is true. We can expect to have like genuine, like religious experiences with things like sunsets um, or sunrises. Like, I would have I always experienced like sunrises that go into work. And I was thinking about his book and I was like, well, if Christianity is true as I think it is, then I'm experiencing God through the sunset. So there's something there. Um, and I think these two can kind of intertwine. But I think the big point I wanted to get on and where I think you're right is this idea of like the importance of having like good discourse. I don't really know about the specific examples you talk about because I don't spend a lot of time like in those um chats or comments or whatever. Um, but I do think you're right that like oftentimes we're so tribalistic and we have our talking points. And I think like you can see this in especially like the American like political sphere and really just like any other debate. Um, oftentimes it's like reduced to like the talking points. You're like, oh, I've seen this a million times. Um, and there's something really important about like genuine discourse, which is why I've been trying to have people like you um, and other non-Christians on my channel more recently. Because I think it's a lot better when you just have that conversation versus like when you're going like back and forth on Twitter or like whatever, because, you know, Twitter's where all the high intellectuals have their debates. Um, so I think there's something really valuable in like having conversations like this because it helps improve the discourse. And I'd hope for people listening, you can see like you can have conversations and not just be like super tribalistic and be like, but Nathan, Colombo, Hilbert's Hotel, like what are you doing? So, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that the the old kind of format of, of debates and so forth as well. Um, the, pro the problem is that once people kind of cotton on to the, to the tricks that people are using to mm -hmm. avoid, you know, genuine objections and so forth, it, yeah. it that again has this massive backfire effect for people who begin to make those observations because they feel like they've had the wool pulled over their eyes by people who are using either the constraints of debate or um, sort of 
linguistic tricks and things to to avoid you know actually engaging with difficulties for their view or um or, or, or kind of sincerely exploring you know what what what's true it's that seems more like you know the kind of classical understanding of sophism right than anything else mm -hmm. yeah no i think that's totally right and i've been growing like i've done some debates in the past and there's some things i've said i'm like oh my gosh why did i say that um I mean, because your views change in three, four years. Um, and I'm sure right. you know that. Um, but I, I think there's something a lot better about conversations than debates because you can actually like explore and like press on like certain issues. Because I think about like certain debates and this is nothing against Craig, but I think about like all his debates he's done. And I don't think he really ever, except for maybe the Stephen Law debate, talked about the problem of animal suffering. Um, and it's a very big problem. And it's nothing against Craig. It's just sometimes in like those strict debate formats, like those big issues that a lot of people are thinking about um they're just not brought up so there's beauty in just having like conversations so just to agree with what you said so maybe then at this point nathan do you think there are like any good arguments for the existence of god like where are you with regards to like god and arguments and things like that i think it depends what you mean by a good argument right um mm -hmm. i mean my take is that a good argument is something that should persuade someone who doesn't agree with the conclusion um of the truth of that conclusion yeah. And I tend not to think that um, there are very many good arguments, if there are any at all, um, on yeah. on that basis. I mean, I mean, one one observation to make might be, um, you know, how firstly, how long the, the these conversations have been going on for. Pretty much, the structure of the arguments is very similar. I mean, you can read passages in in cicero that are basically the same as the fine-tuning argument and so forth obviously things have changed a bit and there's a you know there's a bit of difference and philosophy has changed and different you know different models of logic are used and so on but a, a lot of the stuff is very similar a lot of the objections are basically the same um and there's still widespread disagreement amongst people and it tends to be the case that um people basically find the arguments convincing that surprisingly support the conclusion that they already agreed to i i mean i'm and th this is going to um, this is going to be a, a broader objection to the use of arguments and standards of success in philosophy. I mean, I find the exact same things when it comes to other philosophical topics like consciousness or whatever. You know, f funnily enough, the people who find um, you know like Mary's room a convincing argument are the people who already thought there was something kind of like special or or non non physical about consciousness the people who are physicalists like find a premise to object to or reasons wrong with it and so i you know i just kind of um i i'm very skeptical about about um arguments i mean often there's going to be at least one uh, in a, like a deductive argument there's going to be at least one premise that someone objects to um who, di who disagrees with the conclusion um even if there isn't then someone might say, well, I'm just more confident of the conclusion than I am of any of these premises that you presented with me. So I'm just going to go away and think about it and then reject one. I think that's a perfectly legitimate thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you might kind of catch someone in a kind of reductio situation in that case. Then again, they can just go away and modify their beliefs. And I do, I do think that um, the kind of Oppian, the, the, the Oppie response of, well, what we should actually do to have good um, philosophical discussions around this is just talk about the best theories that embed the contentious claim here and compare those theories to one another. I do think there are downsides to that approach, which could be that the actual standards that you're using to, for theory comparison could be different between the belief structures. And that would be an issue, right? Because mm -hmm. if, if the best theory that embeds, you know, atheism is true or says different things about what the theoretical virtues are than the best theory that 
you know, says theism is true, well, then it's going to be, you know, you're kind of almost going to get in the precept position right there. And, yeah. and the, there's there's a conversation to be had. But I, so I, th I think there are good, from the point of view of, of someone who's a theist, right, I think there are going to be good arguments in the sense that there are going to be, you know, propositions that the theist agrees are true that taken mm -hmm. together entail that God exists. And so yeah. they're going to say, well, of course, you know, like, even like it's sort of like you said about looking at a sunset, right? I think I think all of, all of our perception, according to to the position I hold, is theory laden. So as you you know, as you kind of interpret your experience and what's going going on, there's probably going to be like a set of um, interpretations of that experience that jointly mm -hmm. entail, you know, like God exists or is interacting with me in the sense of stuff. Yeah, and I, I think that that you know that makes sense. the The problem is why should someone who sort of doesn't share your web of beliefs, right, agree to, mm -hmm. agree to any of that as you kind of present it to them. I mean, obviously mm -hmm. they should agree that that's what you believe, but like, should they then kind of just completely abandon what they believe? <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm suspect about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Like, I wouldn't say like um, to like an atheist, like, dude, I have this experience with the sunset, see, obviously God exists. Like, I wouldn't say that at all because um, I think you're totally right. And I think that's why you have to get into... Um, Every person is different because you're going to have that combination of maybe like your intellectual side of like studying or like maybe like your, your intellectual thoughts about God, even like before like studying like apologetics or philosophy. Because I think a lot of people like think about like the existence of God from an intellectual perspective, even without knowing like any of the arguments. Um, like I, like for me, like way before I even knew like William Lane Craig was a human being, um, I think about like I go to bed and I'd be like, well, why is there something rather than nothing? And like if God, and this is when I was like Christian, I was like, well, if God exists and makes sense that there's something, but if God doesn't, like, why would there be something? And this is before I studied anything on anyone on watched any videos with regards to this topic. So I think a lot of people are thinking about these things, even if they don't have the right words for that. Like I was like, oh, that's like a version of the cosmological argument now. Um, so there's that. And then there's something else I was going to say, and I'm just totally losing my train of thought right here. Well, I can um, say something on that point. I, yeah, uh, like, I, I definitely agree with you that... Um... I mean, it's 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 been a part of my experience as well that people think about um, these things. Something something that I would want to note, though, is that I, you know, like I have this kind of skepticism about um, the reach of pure reason, as it were. Right? That this idea <laughs> that our our concepts about these things are kind of going to be these kind of unfiltered a priori, um, you know, the the way that the mm -hmm. concept really is in in and of itself, kind of thing. So. You know, I, some, something that I've realized, or, or at least some, something that I've come to believe, right, is the upshot of some of my kind of doubts is just how much being raised in a Christian or post-Christian community really influences all of the thoughts that I have pertaining to, you know, like what God is, um, my, my thinking about like why the universe might exist and so forth. So when I reflect mm -hmm. upon my experiences of, of thinking about those sorts of questions, I think rather than interpreting that through the lens of this is because, you know, the propositions that make up like a contingency argument or something are kind of there just waiting to be discovered through through pure reason. I think it's mm -hmm. maybe more the influence of um, either Christian theology and like popular culture and films or, you know, like the, the kind of things that were talked about in assemblies and hymns that make up my understanding of what God is. And if I were kind of raised by the Paraha in the Amazon or the Sentinelese on the island, whatever. I don't even know if they actually, you know, have have a word for God. But, but assuming they did, I don't know that I would even necessarily think, um, you know, the type of thing it would do is create or I, you know, I'm just kind of 
I I think a lot of these things are, are very culturally contingent and, and conditioned, like our, our concepts about these things. Um, yeah. I, yeah. No, is there anything you want to say before I... I was only going to say, um, and I, I think Josh Rasmussen actually agreed with me on this because he was saying um, in a conversation about the contingency argument once, he was like, yeah, so, you know, the the foundation of reality well it would be i just don't think it would be this kind of thing i think it would be this kind of thing uh, um a comment that i left was something to do with you know imagine you were kind of raised in in um that region of china where they have the myth about the laoshu turtle right um mm -hmm. perhaps you would be inclined to think well the foundation of reality is the kind of thing that would share certain properties in common with like like certain turtley properties right like wouldn't that just be more plausible to you because of the culture that you were socialized into and you know he he agreed with me on that on that point and i i think um yeah we we just should be suspicious of where some of these concepts come from rather than thinking you know we're accessing like capital t truth mm -hmm. well there's a couple of things that are um super important here to think about one is um maybe a more historical point it's interesting um because i was thinking about this idea of like the idea of the concept of god and things like this like is it a localized idea um so i was doing some research for a paper i had to write for university on like the idea of like a supreme being or like a monotheistic god almost in africa um and it seemed like through my research like a lot of like um, ancient africans believed in a supreme being that was kind of like the head of like their pantheon it was a great dissertation. It was written in the 70s by a guy from the University of Chicago. I'm not finding the name right now. Um, and he talked about this idea that, like, throughout a lot of these tribes, what you find is the idea of, um, obviously, all their other gods, but the idea of, like, a supreme being that was the creator of the universe. Um, usually, they would say something like he was, like, perfect or something like this. But a lot of times, they wouldn't say he was super involved in the world. So I would say, just to push back a little, I think that concept might be a little wider found, but that's a historical point, and I'm not super super well-versed in history. That's just kind of um, what I understand. But the thing I think you were talking about earlier with regards to like interpreting like that sunset experience and I think um, like how much can we know through human reason? I think our worldviews are super important here. Like if we think of like the worldview of like um, Christianity or like theism, where there's a belief in like a supreme God, a perfect God, and it's like maybe like perfectly rational um, and say that like he creates us, then we would, I think we'd expect that like we'd be able to come to a lot of truth or truth with regards to like rationality, like coming to understand like the nature of like um, the foundation of the world. So if God exists, I think we would have a good reason to think we could discover these things. But like, if God doesn't exist, um, we're just like evolved primates um, who just like come over, over a lot of time then we probably wouldn't expect to be able to understand a lot of things. Like I remember very clearly um, I listened to the Graham Oppie on the when belief dies podcast. This is, I remember exactly where I was when I heard this, cause it was super like impactful for me. Um, he was talking about the argument from reason and he said um, he's kind of willing to say like, yeah, our reason capacities kind of suck um, because we're evolved primates and we're going to get a lot of things wrong. And I'm from an atheistic worldview. That makes a lot of sense to me. Like I wouldn't expect our reason to be able to go very far under like an atheistic worldview. So I think um, understanding like how much we can know through reason is probably going to be largely contingent on like our worldviews and how we think about like um, our position in the universe and things like that. So sorry, I just threw a lot at you, but that's just kind of no, it's absolutely fine as you were talking. What mm -hmm. one uh, problem that I kind of have with these lines of reasoning is it sort of depends on kind of what you specify in the hypothesis, right? Like, um, mm -hmm. I, and I, I tend to find that, uh, and this is why I raised the point about the kind of um, cultural contingency of some of the, these beliefs that do get specified in the hypothesis, is mm -hmm. even when we look at um, cross-cultural examples of um, supreme being belief and things like that, mm -hmm. the kind of 
stipulations that theists who want to make the, these arguments about what's expected and so forth for uh, the ways in which like uh, a supreme being would act or the reasons they would have to act and so forth. Those sorts of things are very theology dependent, like very, very um, specific on the theology. Because when I, when I think about just bare theism, I honestly, I, I think that for me, the probability space is basically equal to like just atheism. Like I have no idea that that God might want to like create a universe with psychophysical laws that, um, you know, where a very specific physical constants um, permit life. That being might want to create nothing. It might want to create a universe that pops in, does nothing. But you can, what you can do is you can specify in the hypothesis some specific like reasons that that God would have or some specific theology about what that God values and so forth. That kind of get, you know, then does give you and entail kind of what you want to get right <laughs> which is um it desiring and wanting the, this universe but the ba the bare theism i don't think does that and um yeah that so this is something i kind of i just that I, I struggle with when these kind of arguments are made like I, I don't know why um on bare theism for example a god would want to make people with reliable cognitive faculties um it might want to make people with like unreliable cognitive faculties right and then we, but then we can bring something or it might want to just not create people at all so then you know the very existence of beings with any cognitive faculties is evidence against in a sense um and then another thing i would say to that as well is an issue with taking that view with the view that there is a hypothesis right which where it's expected that um you know beings like us would be created with um, reliable cognitive faculties the problem is that then you're going to have to look at all of the cognitive biases and heuristics literature out there, right? Which which is a lot, <laughs> and that's all going to have to count as evidence against that hypothesis being true as well. And uh, and I think would drive you to kind of favouring that that hypothesis isn't true, given all of the the problems and reasoning biases and so forth that there are. Um, I think mm -hmm. Eamon Tversky and Daniel Kahneman have done a lot of work on that stuff. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Um, the dissertation I was talking about, I just pulled it up while I was thinking about it. It's called, uh, it's by Benjamin C. Ray, African High Gods, a study of the concept of a supreme being in six African societies. So it's a PhD dissertation from the University of Chicago in 1971. So that's that in case you Is it an that. anthropology, an anthropology one? or I don't know no. the field. I don't have that listed right here. I just okay. have the citation that I pulled up. Yeah, so I'll look into it because it sounds interesting. But I, yeah, I was just wondering if you knew like, um, yeah, what like, field he was doing that for i'm not sure i mean i know like when i i like skim read the dissertation as going he talked about like here's this tribe and here was all their religious beliefs here's how the supreme being fit into their um beliefs and there's that's kind of like the general schema of it he went through like six different ones um so that's the general scheme so i won't really say anything about like the divine psychology thing just because i don't want to go too far down that route i'd encourage people though um if you want to hear like i had apologetic squared and we did a response to nathan and um james when they did the fine tuning and one of your guys' big objections, and I think it's a really valuable one um, and one that should be used more because I think it's really helpful, is the idea of like this divine psychology objection. We did a response to them on that. Um, so I'd encourage you to check that one out. You can just look it up, like apologetics squared, adhering apologetics, fine-tuning, something like that. Um, so you can find that if you want to see like kind of what I and what squared thinks. He did most of the work there um, on that. So anything else you want to say on that topic, Nathan, before we get into like the final Yeah, I can, I can think of – I can think of one good example, actually, to to kind of illustrate the point that I'm making about pure reason. I mean, but perhaps mm -hmm. you'd agree that something like um, 
the the count the natural numbers uh one two three four and so on are sort of like you know like a a, a prime example of something that would be innate you know like an access through pure reason or something like that right mm -hmm. yeah i'd agree and 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 one problem for that is that you know like cultures like the paraha for example have just no concept of the natural numbers um mm -hmm. they they just don't i think they don't count above like two or three and even you know like uh, uh, th there's really interesting discourse um daniel everett i think is the guy who did who did the the research around this but um yeah, just really interesting discourse about like the way that their language functions and so on. And I mean, this gets into a broader discussion about the way that language works and a kind of view of um, like picture theories of language, which I, I object to the idea being, I think what we have a tendency to do is reify the language that we're socialized into and think that the meanings are like these mental propositions um, that are then shared between languages and different languages like express the same propositions and so forth. And that's sort of not my view of language. And I think that the Paraha is uh, the Paraha are a good example of um, why that isn't true. There's lots of other examples sort of like, um, you know, like in, in, in Russian where you might say um, brick reds, for example, and there's like no copula to, to do work in the proposition or um, different like shades of shades of blue and things like that in different in different languages. But the yeah the point the point that I want to raise is we I just think we should we should be kind of like skeptical of certain things where we where we think we're accessing you know like a pure a pure cognitive kind of content meaning of something mm -hmm. like the the numbers right and then you might do arithmetic operations or you know proofs about the properties of all the uh, of all the natural numbers and think yeah like that you know this has got to be something that is uh, really true you know like this a priori truth whereas for someone who's in like the Paraha culture where they just haven't been socialized into um, doing the actions that we do when we talk about um, counting and doing maths and so forth, they, you know, they don't share those a priori um, truths. They have like a completely different conception of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. Okay. I don't really want to push back. Um, yeah. Sorry. Don't don't yeah. And if you don't know about um, the case. Yeah. And I think once again, all I'd say for now is just, I just, from the reaffirm the point of like the worldviews like how we interpret these things can be largely dependent on our worldviews and like our presuppositions and all these things and i'm not a presuppositional apologist by the way to anyone um listening on nathan's side of things just so you know um so i'm, I'm interestingly close to presuppositionalism <laughs> i just have a criticism of the way that they present you know like then they think they've got an argument right which bridges that gap and i think there's an issue with that but <laughs> Yeah. Um, so maybe the last thing to talk about here, Nathan, is like, what's your biggest problem you have with Christianity? Um, so one thing that I'm thinking about, like, what's the biggest thing, like, maybe like holding you back from becoming a Christian? And maybe if there's something else you want to say with regards, to, like, maybe like more like the culture of Christianity or something like that, because I know you talk a lot about that as well. So where are you with that? I'm just trying to think of like the, you know, like one, one biggest reason. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's that, hard because like, it's yeah. usually not just one thing that's holding you back. So yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it it's difficult for me to think of, you know, like, what what is the best, uh, you know, like, what's the clearest sort of illustration, right, that I, I could make of what of what my problem is. And I'm not kind of sure. Um, I think it's, it's going to be something along the lines of, um, okay, for, for everything, in terms of in terms of reasons for believing um, that God exists, right? There's, God's going to be put forward as a sort of explanation of some feature of reality. Um, and 
So if you listen to a theist sort of object to um, an atheist worldview, they'll say all sorts of things like, well, how, you know, how do you get from fundamental particles consciousness? How, you know, how does the, why does the universe exist? How do you get something out of nothing? All, you know, these sorts of mm -hmm. um, sound bites. But my general kind of finding with this, even at kind of the academic level, is that they, their responses to a lot of these things are kind of like, well, well it's God, right? God, God explains that. But there's just this kind of like word God and this assumption that that does some work there. But I actually find that it, it tends not to explain anything any better than if you just kind of say something like, well, nature has a mysterious disposition to um, produce universes out of nothing, right? I mean, I don't mm -hmm. believe the universe began to exist, but suppose I did. Or nature has a mysterious disposition, right, for consciousness to supervene. on. For, it, it just becomes this kind of um, description of the phenomena that you're trying to explain. But... It's actually it's it's not informative. There's no empirical content. There's a there, there's all these kind of like problems basically with it as a, as an explanation, in, mm -hmm. in a sense that there wouldn't be problems for like other things that that are good explanations like maybe um, a, atomic theory or Charles's law or something as an explanation of something. And so, yeah, I, I and I just think they're basically on a par, right? And so I can't find good reasons to kind of motivate viewing God as the explanation of any of these things. That, I'm going to say that's the main reason, and that you know, there's there's mm -hmm. others I could draw in there, but I think that's that's the main one philosophically. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, well, thanks, Nathan, so much for like coming on today. I really enjoyed like this conversation. Do you have anything else you want to say with regards to? We covered a lot of ground here. Anything else you want to say before we wrap up here? Uh, no, that's it. Thanks for having me on. Um, thanks for you know inviting cross. Uh, cross-borders discussion and for asking uh, me a bunch of questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I enjoyed this conversation and I'm really hoping to have more um, cross-borders conversations in the future and anytime you want to talk, let me know and we'll try to work something out. And yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation and I think it's um, hopefully really helpful and edifying to people as they listen to this is something you can use to serve you and just like pursuing truth. Um, and obviously we carry a lot of things with us, but just trying to help us remember, like, we're all like human beings at the end of the day and we can still like love each other and have conversations, even if we like totally disagree on everything. Um, there's something beautiful about that. So thank you so much for coming on, Nathan. Really enjoyed this. Um, to all the people in the future listening to this, Nathan's YouTube channel is added, or for me, it will be added on that um, description thing. So just be at Digital Gnosis. Go subscribe. Um, great content there, and I really enjoy what Nathan's doing. And yeah, that's it. Obviously, if you're new here, I encourage you to subscribe, leave a like, all those fun things. Um, no new patrons, I think, since the last time, but if you want to support our show, you can come to Patreon at patreon.com slash Um But yeah, thank you so much, Nathan, for coming on. I really enjoyed this. And one last time, yeah, just thank you. Can't say thank you yeah, enough. Thanks. Just keep saying thank you. <laughs> Awesome. Well, have a good one, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Um, stay safe and have a good one.